Hello and welcome to What's the Story, Ghost? I'm your host, Annette. And I'm Stephen. And today we are on episode 20. Can you believe it's 20 episodes? Yes, because I've been writing them down. (laughs) So today we are going to cover Loftus House, or Loftus Hall as most people would know it as. We crack on? Crackity-lackity, smackity-waggity. Oh God, okay. Get that one out. So often we hear stories of hauntings in abandoned asylums, rickety old hotels and forgotten castles now in ruins. But it's a little harder to accept when it's a home, the place you're supposed to feel safe and know you'll be able to rest after a hard day's work. What is just bricks and mortar to some is a haven for others from the rest of the world. Now, I'm not saying that Loftus Hall had nothing but hard times I am sure that there were some good memories made there, but an old house, however, tends to hold on to negative energy caused by past tribulations. Now, not unlike our episode on Lep Castle, there is so much history here that helps to explain just how much this home has endured in 672 years. Bear with me if you know this story, some of the characters of today's tale have 27 middle names. So in order for this episode not to sound like the audiobook version of the big book of baby names, I'll only be using first and last names. In 1170, Raymond Le Gros acquired land in County Wexford. There he built a fortress and named it Houseland Castle on the Hook Peninsula. As a result of his tireless fight against the Irish people to conquer them, he changed his name to Redmond to assimilate into Irish society. Down his descendant line, Another Redmond family replaced the castle with a new home in around 1350 at another location on the same land. The new home was known as the Hall or Redmond Hall. The new estate was built around the time of the Black Plague and the new location, though on the same land, was further from neighbouring villages and the reach of the common folk. This was done in an attempt to keep the residents safe, which worked for a time but it nearly seemed like the land was scorned, like the act of reconstruction ignited an otherworldly need for revenge, because in the years to come, the home endured so much more than any damage the local villagers could have caused. In 1642, Redmond's Hall was attacked by soldiers loyal to England's Charles I. The Irish Confederate Wars had broken out in 1641, and hostilities commenced in Wexford in 1643. An English garrison of around 100 men under the command of Lord Esmond was based at Duncannon Fort on Waterford Harbour. This garrison was reinforced by a further 200 soldiers and six cannons under the command of Captain Anthony Weldon and Captain Thomas Aston. While on their way to Tin Turn, a group of Irish Confederates under Captain Rossiter and Major James Butler attacked a party of these soldiers at Shieldbaggin. The English were defeated and driven back to their fort. Redmond's Hall was clearly visible to the weakened garrison at Duncannon. Alexander Raymond, the hall's owner, was known to be sympathetic to the rebels and Redmond Hall was known as a place the rebels could find assistance. Captain Aston believed Redmond Hall could be easily taken, so with around 90 men and two cannons, he set sail for Duncannon, landing near the hall. Alexander was around 68 at the time, but he was ready and willing to defend his home. He barricaded the hall and prepared for battle. His sons Robert and Michael assisted him along with some of their tenants, two men-at-arms and an itinerant tailor who happened to be working at the hall during the attack. Armed with long-barrelled fell pieces, the ten men readied themselves. 
Positioning his men up at the front of the hall, Captain Aston demanded admission in the name of the king. Alexander replied that Aston was more than welcome to come in, but his soldiers and their weapons must stay outside. A lengthy gun battle ensued, but Aston was displeased at his men's lack of progress. He learned his cannons were too small to make any impression on the main door. And to add to his troubles, about half of his men abandoned him to ransack the countryside. As the fight dragged on, a thick sea mist fell on the Hook Peninsula. The Irish Confederates were still encamped at Shielbaggin, under Captain Rossiter and Captain Thomas Roach. Hearing of the attack at the hall, they marched to the aid of the defenders and surprised the attackers under the cover of fog. About 30 of the English men escaped to their boats and back to the fort. Captain Aston himself was killed during the battle, but many others, including Lord Esmond's two nephews, Lieutenants John and Walter Esmond, were taken prisoner. Several of the English prisoners were hanged the following day, supposedly at Ballyhack, on Thomas Roach's orders. Eleven others were hanged at New Ross, including one of Esmond's brothers. So much blood was shed on the land during that one battle, all for the petty complaint of, you have what I want, gimme. The Redmond family alleges that Alexander had to defend the hall once or twice again against soldiers of Oliver Cromwell during the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland. Alexander received favourable terms from Cromwell, but when he died in the hall in 1650 or 1651, his surviving family was evicted and only retained a third of their original estates in County Wexford. The Loftus family were English planters who had owned land in the vicinity from around 1590. Sir Dudley Loftus was granted the lands around Kilcloggan. Nicholas Loftus took over the manor of Feathered-on-Sea in 1634 and Feathered Castle became the family residence. After the end of Cromwell's campaign, Nicholas Loftus was given ample lands in the south of County Wexford and purchased the hall from several adventurers and soldiers but it was only in 1666 when his son Henry moved to the hall from Dungulf that it became the principal residence of the Loftus family. Henry had the following inscription etched in stone on the entrance piers at Porter's Gate. Henry Loftus of Loftus Hall, Esquire, 1680, to establish the new name of his property. However, as happens even today with old pubs or hotels, the old name remained in use at least until the end of the century. In 1684, Henry Loftus carried out extensive repairs on the hall, which likely needed repairing after the tumultuous events of times gone by. The Redmond family had disputed the claim of the Loftus family in court with no success. Yet in 1684, they were compensated with lands in the north of County Wexford. Between 1872 and 1884, John Loftus, the fourth Marquess of Ely, under the guidance of his mother, Lady Jane Loftus, a lady-in-waiting to Queen Victoria, undertook a vast rebuilding of the entire mansion, adding some of the famous elements such as the grand staircase, mosaic tiled flooring, elaborate parquet flooring, and technical elements which had not been seen in houses in Ireland at the time, such as flushing toilets and blown air heating. A lot of Lord Eli's inspiration was taken from Osborne House, the Queen's summer residence on the Isle of Wight. The extensive works were believed to have been undertaken to facilitate a visit from the Queen, but this never happened and the family never got to fully enjoy the house. John Loftus passed away very young and left the estate in a poor financial state to his cousin who eventually elected to place it on the market. 
the Black Plague, battles on the doorstep, the eviction of an entire family and a very young death. So far, Loftus Hall has seen its fair share of death and sadness, but we're not even halfway through our story. In 1752, Charles Tottenham became Lord of the Manor after marrying the Honourable Anne Loftus, daughter of the first Viscount Loftus. According to the instructions of Nicholas Loftus, Charles had to adopt the Loftus name to inherit the land and title. Charles and Anne went on to have six children, four boys and two girls. Unfortunately, Anne fell very ill and died while her daughters Elizabeth and Anne were very young. Two years later, Charles remarried and he, Anne and his new bride, his cousin Jane Cliff, lived together at Loftus Hall. Some years later, a terrible storm settled over the coast. Charles, Jane and Anne knew that they needed to batten down the hatches as the storm was becoming violent, so they settled into their home accompanied by friends, food and fine wine. Unbeknownst to them, the ferocious storm had caused a ship to crash on the shore of the Hook Peninsula. It's not known how many were aboard the ship, but only one emerged from the wreckage. A young man with a pale and sickly thin face dressed all in black. He was said to have sunken grey, tired eyes that looked as though they hadn't slept in years. He stumbled to his feet and on raising his head he could see the flickering lights of Loftus Hall in the distance and began to walk toward it. The closer he got to the home, the more the storm intensified, the rain now pouring and thunder growing louder. The shipwrecked man weakly lifted his hand to knock on the impressive front door. Child responded to the knocking. He took one look at the stranger standing in his doorway and immediately knew he needed help. This was by no means a regular occurrence, but not unusual. The private shoreline was often used by sailors as a haven in stormy weather. He invited the stranger into his home and offered him shelter for a few days along with warm clothing and food. While sitting down to dinner, Charles introduced the stranger to his daughter Anne. They were both immediately drawn to one another. His mannerisms changed dramatically, from a weakly shipwrecked wanderer to an eloquent rugged man. Anne began to acquaint herself with this now dashing stranger. After dinner, Charles suggested a game of cards to some of his companions. They too were waiting out the storm. He inquired if the stranger would like to join them, to which he agreed. Anne was a strong-minded young lady and insisted that she too be included in the card game, even though it was highly improper for young ladies of Anne's breeding to do so. A few games in, though, the guests started to notice a bit of a trend. When the stranger's cards were dealt, he would be on the verge of losing and then suddenly would land the perfect card. Between these gloating displays of brilliance, the stranger would glance at Anne, holding his gaze until she lifted her eyes to meet his, waiting to see her blush. Throughout the evening, the young couple grew more and more comfortable in each other's company. He won, and he won, and then he won again. Growing tired of his obvious trickery, the other guests bowed out one by one. Eventually, it was just Charles, Anne, and the stranger sitting at the card table. Anne flirting more directly now, despite her father sitting beside her. He was just grateful the other guests had left the table. Anne lay down what she thought was a winning hand, followed by a witty remark to the stranger. He pointed out that she had not won the hand just yet, as she seemed to be missing a card. Anne realised she dropped the card on the floor. The butler tending their table offered, but she insisted on retrieving the winning card herself. 
but when Anne bent down, she noticed the stranger had removed his shoes and crossed out what should have been his ankles weren't feet at all. The stranger had cloven hooves. Anne screamed in fear and recoiled from the young man, her eyes welling with tears of shock and disbelief. The stranger rose to his feet and burst into a fit of rage at Anne's disgust. A loud clap of thunder erupted what sounded like right outside the window. And then slowly, from his feet to his head, the stranger became enveloped in flames and with all his rage, he shot through the ceiling into the night sky, leaving behind the pungent smell of sulphur and a gaping hole in the ceiling. Anne fell ill after the incident. She was taken to her favourite room in the house named the Tapestry Room. There, Anne became a recluse and never left the room. Be it the shock of it all, sorrow and heartbreak pining after her young lover, or the more scandalous rumour was that she was imprisoned due to an unplanned pregnancy. Many people truly believed that the devil himself did visit the Loftus home that night. Of course, of course, leaving behind his spirit to terrify others for centuries afterwards. However, given the era, others believe that maybe Anne and the stranger were found together in an unladylike fashion, perhaps even in each other's embrace, which would have enraged Anne's father. It is possible that the young man left the home at Charles Tottenham's request. From my brief history lesson watching season one of Bridgerton, I know that back then if you were caught in a compromising position with a young lady, her father or brother may challenge you to a duel if you refuse to marry said lady. So it is likely that he was subsequently killed, sending Anne into a pit of depression, which would ultimately end in her death. One last version I have come across that some people believe is that Anne was found to be pregnant by the young stranger which would account for her illness, but also that Anne's pregnancy reached full term and the baby was taken from her, smothered, and then buried within the walls of Loftus Hall. This sounds heinous, but this rumour was corroborated when during the renovation in 1870, the new owners allegedly discovered the skeletal remains of an infant hidden in the walls. The lineage of the remains to this day has not been confirmed, though many believe this to be Anne's baby born out of wedlock. Some believe the Tottenham family constructed the entire story of the devil to save face in the public eye and draw away from the shame that a pregnant daughter would bring upon the family name. The home seemed to have trapped Anne's ghost even after her death. Servants of Loftus Hall would swear they regularly saw a ghostly figure wandering in the corridors at night. This became the norm, so they named the spirit the Mistress Anne. Obviously the turnover in staff was quite high from then on. Unfortunately, the Mistress Anne was not always benevolent. She was said to torment anyone who was brave enough to sleep in her tapestry room. A small hunting party was said to have stayed in the house in the 1860s, among them a young man. The first night, after a tipple or two with his comrades, the young man retired for the night, only to be woken moments after his head touched the pillow to see a beautiful young woman walk into his room. She stood at the foot of his bed for a moment and then vanished into the closet. Now, we've all had a few scoops too many and thought we were seeing things, so we'll forgive him for falling back to sleep while assuming it was his friends playing a trick on him. The following night, the young man retired to his room after a long day of hunting to clean his gun. As he sat on the bed, again, the young lady entered his room. The young man tried to speak with her, but she did not respond. She simply returned to the closet as she did the night before, 
The young man was terrified, so he decided to climb into the safety of his bed and sleep. But that was not to be the case. As if a monster had been let loose in his chamber, fearful growling and snarling sounds filled his room that night. The sheets were pulled from his bed and the curtains torn from the windows. Absolutely terrified, the young man grabbed his gun and shot out into the darkness of the room and then fled. The following morning, when the young man questioned the servants, he was told about Mistress Anne and advised to leave well enough alone. He was gone later that day. The hauntings were persistent in the home, tormenting the residents and guests until Father Thomas Broders, a local Catholic priest, came to exercise the home, which in itself shows how desperate the family were. At the time, Catholicism was illegal. Try as he might, he couldn't exercise Mistress Anne from the home, but he was able to confine her to her tapestry room. Father Broders died in 1773, buried beneath a gravestone that is said to read, Here lies the body of Thomas Broders, who did good and prayed for all and banished the devil from Loftus Hall. But that's just conjecture. The next disturbing development in the story of Loftus Hall was when the property was sold to the Sisters of Providence, despite its urban legends, ghost stories and paranormal happenings. Loftus Hall was rumoured to have served as a meeting place for satanic cults for years when it was abandoned because of the otherworldly sightings. But back then, anything that was difficult to explain was deemed satanic. The Catholic Church bought the property in 1917. The Sisters of Providence used it as a school for wayward youths and girls interested in joining the order. Late into the night, students reported seeing strange shapes, light trails and hearing strange, inexplicable sounds. In multiple instances, one girl saw a spectre of a young woman drifting behind her as she attempted to walk to the kitchen. Another young girl claimed she witnessed several bizarre, seemingly sentient light orbs. When she ran down the stairs in an attempt to get away, they passed through the ceiling and continued to chase her. The nuns refused to believe the students, claiming that they were making it up to get out of coursework, but they regretted reprimanding the girls soon after. One night, while walking up the stairs to the second floor landing, two nuns dropped dead. No explanation and no reason. After this incident, Loftus Hall was again abandoned. In the 1940s, when the Loftus family mausoleum in Federland Sea was broken into, a strange shaped coffin was discovered. It said that the oddly shaped coffin was made for Anne. Her body had become fused in a sitting position, clutching her legs as she rocked back and forward, crying for her lost love. It said that she was found in this position and her body couldn't be freed. Whatever version of the story you believe, one thing for sure is true. Home really is where the heart is. The Redmond showed you will always fight for your home. The Loftus family showed you will always want your home to look its best. And the Sisters of Providence showed, when little girls are telling you they saw a ghost, believe them. What do you think of that story? It was lovely. It was yeah. lovely. <laughs> no. I know it was a long one. There's too much stuff in it that I couldn't I couldn't leave out the nuns. I couldn't leave out the card game, obviously. So, the Hellfire Club and Loftus Hall, there's a definite connection. Well, we've already, I don't know if we mentioned it before in the Hellfire episode, there was um, a hunting lodge on Mount Pillar, where the Hellfire Club is that belonged to the Loftus family. I don't know if it's a particular demon that was haunting that kind of family or... I don't know. I think that's the only... Or if they're like, there's a big demon and he deputises other demons. 
And they're all, they're, they're, because that would explain, because I was thinking here and I was connecting the Hellfire and Loftus. Yeah. And I was like, right, what went wrong on these two occasions that we know about yeah. is that somebody dropped a card and there is this cloven hooves. Yeah. Now, it could be that particular woman's trademark. I think there's a manual that needs to be written for these deputies, <laughs> deputants, whichever you want to call them. Okay. Uh, and one of the top things is a do not do, and it is do not take your shoes off. Yeah, no. You'll th- give away the game. That is very true. That is very true. Because I've never heard of any stories where a devil or a demon has been seen where anything is a giveaway except for the cloven hooves. Because in some of the stories that I read, he jumps up from the table and he says, I have been discovered. But it's the only it's the only given. It's the only tell that they have. They, they it very seldom have horns or, you know... To tell, maybe he was just pissed off because he didn't have the winning hand that time. I don't think he ever had the winning hand. I think that's what the other men kind of caught. They were like, no, he's up to something tricky here. He, he is, he's, There's nothing on the table for him to win, yet somehow he always ends up pulling out this winning card. No, so no. they were like, no, none of this trickery. Now, I don't know, did he do it on purpose to slowly weed out the people at the table so that the only people that were left were... Charles and Anne so that he could you know have a little bit of a flirt with Anne have a chat with Charles you know can I have your daughter can I marry your daughter can I have your daughter too for my <laughs> so I don't know but then again I also have a theory about who he was there's no record whatsoever of how many people were on the ship that he was on so I wonder did he get a visit from El Davy Jones and was given an option you're on the verge of dying you can either die or you can be, become one of my demon minions. Because when they first laid eyes on him, he was gaunt. He looked horrible. He looked like he hadn't slept in weeks. And then all of a sudden he gets a, a, a whiff of Anne. I don't know. Reinvigorated him. And all of a sudden he's this dashing stranger. So Maybe he, he was like the, the beast from Beauty and the Beast. And he had to yeah. marry a beautiful woman so yeah. he could get his normal legs back exactly and I think that's why Pinocchio he was so that's why he was so upset I don't know how we can put Disney a Disney spin on this story but that would be the way to do it yeah yeah. so maybe because it was said specifically in most of the stories that I read her reaction was what made him go absolutely ballistic it's like yeah I'm the devil get over it but it's the fact that she recoiled and she was like ew get away from me but then I'm also like, mm, well, then why did she end up in her bedroom in a pit of despair? Because she missed him. Mm. What do you think about the hide your daughter, she's actually pregnant story? Because that came up yeah, a I, lot. Yeah, then you said there was a, ba- a, a baby skeleton found in the walls. Yeah. It's like, Because that was evidence. one of the big renovations. The big renovation, I, I read about it, the, the foyer or the hall that led to the staircase at the time. The staircase, what a great Netflix show. Stop. Oh, do you know what? We haven't even watched that, and that's the second time you've mentioned it. We have watched that. No, we haven't watched I, mm, I've watched that. I don't think I've it watched It was Murder Most Mystery, Janine Pennsylvania and Patrick Hines. No, you're thinking of Murder Most Irish, and you're also thinking of True Crime merged, Obsessed. I have, merged, <laughs> I have merged two great shows into one amazing <laughs> show. Um, The Staircase and the Foyer, or the Hallway. Now, when I say a hallway, I don't mean like your mom or dad's, or my dad's landing, like, or hallway in the this hallway was you'd have a small banquet in this hallway but that and the staircase alone back then cost about five grand which today for just that one room and the staircase cost about half a million so there was a huge renovation done and I think in that particular room the furniture was all removed 
Um, and I think they started doing something with one of the walls and then they realized the wall was actually falling to pieces. So they said, right, okay, knock the whole thing down and we'll see if we like the room, if we don't like the room that bit bigger, or we'll build the wall back up again. And then they found the skeletal remains. If it wasn't an infant, you would just think, oh God, maybe one of the servants, you know. It's that, you kind of have all the stories you tell, you'd be like, ah, so you found a body in the wall, so what? Did you find a pit with 150,000 bodies in it? (laughs) What was that called again? An obulette. An obulette. Yeah, we learned a fancy word, Stephen, we may as well use it. But yeah, during the renovations, they found that and they were just kind of like, uh, do we do we hush this? Do we do we bury it back in the wall again? Because it's not really like the Loftus family held on to that house for years. So it's not really a secret that you kind of want, I suppose, crawling out of the wall again is the wrong expression to use. What do you think about the nuns? How long was it a nunnery? I don't remember the name of the order, but the the home was bought, bought for a while and it was used for that religious order. And then it was bought by the Catholic Church and the Sisters of Prov- Providence used it as um, a school for wayward girls and also a place for girls to come and learn how to be a nun, really. So pe- girls that wanted to join the order. So it was a good few years that it was used. But then there was also a gap in there that it wasn't being used. Um, the nuns took a gap here. They did. And then it was bought... It off of the J1. <laughs> It was it was used as a hotel as well for I don't know if it was a decade I think it was a decade, and then it was sold again in twenty twenty and I think it's closed to the public now which sucks because I would have loved to go and see it, um because the boys are at an age now where if we go to all these spooky haunted places they're not going to remember I mean they might see more than we see because they have a different veil than we do there's a weaker veil between this life and another life and kids are more prone to seeing poltergeists or you know, apparitions and stuff. There's often times that the boys are just staring in the corner and I'm just kind of like, hello. And then out of nowhere, fit of giggles. I'm like, okay, we're turning on the teddy. You can't tell, but he's nodding. Oh, yes, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot there's no visuals to wear. And so we haven't quite made it that far yet in life. So three main characters? Go, go, go. Who are the three main characters? We have Mr. Hoof. The Stranger. Yeah, Stranger Danger. And Charles. Which is the dad. And Anne. And Anne. So I'm going to go straight to my... Because this has become a thing now. I need a character from Stranger Things. Okay. And it's going to be played by a young Winona Ryder. Okay, I know who that is. Of all the Stranger Things characters, I know who that is. Because she's exceptionally famous. Right, but not Beetlejuice Winona Ryder. We're talking like she would have been a lady, a regal lady. Yes, yes. The father. Okay. Uh, And, you know, bear with me here because the age categories are a bit all over the place. (laughs) Uh, But Jack Black. No, I can see that. No, yeah, definitely. I can see that. Because when because when the devil thing jumps up, he can jump straight into his... Uh, yes, 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 yes. Song. Yes. Uh, and then, because he's coming from a ship, mm-hmm. I'm thinking Johnny Depp. Why not? Oh, my God. Johnny Depp and, like, Renaud Ryder, would, they, would, they, would, they would do a really good flirting game uh, together. A hooven Johnny Depp. They, he, do you know what? Have you ever seen Johnny Depp run? Yeah, well... Well, there's all memes all over TikTok. <laughs> Johnny Depp run. That is because he has hooven legs. Yes, this makes sense. This makes sense. Um, Johnny Depp, if you listen, I, I, I mean no ill. I'm sure you have lovely legs <laughs> and, and real feet. I think that character... Do you know what I am thinking, though, as well? Because you've forgotten somebody and we have uh, It's Caddy Bates. I have yes. forgotten. Caddy Bates can be whoever she wants. Caddy Bates can be John's second wife, who is also his cousin. But do you know what? That was totally normal for that back then. And you were saying about the age difference. 
back then kids were getting married. Oh yeah. Like yeah, yeah. and it wouldn't even it wouldn't even be like a thirty year old man would be marrying like a fourteen year old girl. Fourteen and fifteen year old girls and boys were not what they are today. They were young adults and they were dressed in fineries and you know, the men would like to wear ascots and nowadays I don't even know if a fifteen year old knows what an ascot is. No. Thirty something year old It's a type of tie. But Back then, it was totally normal for them to be promenading. Oh. It would be totally normal for them to be doing that kind of stuff when they are at the coming of age. Now, I don't know what that is for guys, but for girls, it's anywhere between 12 and 15, 12 and 14. So Mm. think about it. If you're looking at 30-year-olds were basically wearing 15-year-old kids. As their wives. No. (laughs) I mean, they got married at 15 and then had kids straight away. And if the woman was lucky enough to manage to survive labor, they, they would be a 30 year old married couple with like six or seven kids aged 15 and, and lower. It's it's madness. So Jack Black and. Yes, but at that, at that time, the, the life expectancy was much shorter. Yeah. Like, did you ever watch Rain or EIGN? I think you might have tried to get me into it. It was about Mary Queen of Scots. Absolutely brilliant series. It's a. It's a tamer version, and I mean it. Like it is very tame in comparison to Game of Thrones, but it is so authentic and so based on the time. Yeah. But I always thought that they were, I don't know, twenty five, thirty. It wasn't like Mary Queen of Scots was seventeen when she married. Fifteen him. and seventeen. Yeah, and I think he died like three years later. That's all the commentary I have in that. Um, I thought it was a really good story. I really, I really it was, enjoyed it. Was really it. But this is what happens with these stories, and I, I'm, I am a history buff's daughter, so I, I do apologize if I tend to go into the history a little bit. But I just, I know I've spoken before about residual energy, and I cannot express it enough. Older houses are, are just that, especially when they go through a lot. And I just wanted to explain what the house has been through. No matter who owned it or whose hands it went through, it still is always somebody's home. And when it just goes through so much crap purely to exist, all that residual energy is just like, I mean, the amount of blood is just seeped into yeah, yeah. the ground. I'm would... surprised that there's not a, a convention of ghost soldiers roaming around the place. Now, in fairness, half of them fled to go and pillage the countryside and a lot of them died um, outside because they were either hung or... Actually, no, I think they were all hung. It was just two different locations. But I just... I got lost in the story a little bit, so I was really grateful to do it. But I just there was so much stuff in there that I didn't realize. So you had actually suggested it to me last week, and then Stephen had suggested it to me again, and then Kelly actually suggested it to me when she suggested the Hellfire Club. So I was like, people might not know a lot of this because when I was reading it, I didn't know it. So again, I'm a history buff's daughter. I, I apologize if it was a bit of a lengthy hell story. I just thought it was really really interesting. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Do you want ice cream? Yeah, let's finish this I'll up I'll say my bits. I'll say my bits. Okay. Thanks so much for listening to the episode today, guys. If you have any questions or queries or comments on today's episode, you can DM us on our Instagram. It's What's the Story Ghost. If you have any personal stories you would like to share with us, our email is What's the Story Ghost at gmail.com. And on that note, exit jingle. Do, 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 do. I think that's the same as last week. Well done for being consistent. I was trying to be original. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, bye. bye.